Welcome back to the Cosmic Chronicles podcast, where imagination meets reality and science fiction comes to life. I'm your host, Quinn, and I am once again joined by my co-host, James. Hello. How's it going? Pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Now, guys, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and you can listen into the podcast wherever you get your podcast, including but not limited to Spotify, Apple podcast and Google podcast. Today's topic, leaving Earth, humanity's journey in outer space. Now, the idea that we would someday leave Earth and venture out and travel to distant star systems, distant planets, and explore strange new things, perhaps contact alien species, has always been deeply fascinating to me. It's always been a deeply compelling idea. And I think that it's been a deeply compelling idea to humans ever since we discovered that planets were an actual thing. Now, people have looked up to the sky and made up stories and wondered about what was up there for forever, since the dawn of mankind, basically. But the first planet ever discovered was actually in 1781. So you got this guy, William Herschel, and he's actually looking for binary stars. He's not like looking for planets. And he's actually searching the Taurus constellation. And he discovers what he at first believes is a comet. But upon examining its orbit, he understands that it is in fact a planet. The first ever planet discovered by a telescope. Uranus. So that's the first planet ever discovered by a telescope. Now the first time that we're able to launch a rocket high enough to get into outer space didn't occur until 1942. And this is a German rocket. It's a V-2 missile, which actually gets into outer space. And then it wouldn't be until 1957, October 4th, that we're able to launch the first satellite ever, Sputnik, using a R-7 ICBM rocket. So this is the first thing that we've actually launched into orbit, the first thing we've launched into outer space. And then, of course, 12 years later, we get the most famous mission of all time into outer space, the Apollo 11 mission. The Apollo 11 mission was launched by the Saturn V rocket in 1969, the first and only ever manned mission to the moon. Now, when I was a kid and I learned about the moon landing, I really, really, really believed that by the time like I was an adult, we would be on Pluto. I thought if we got to the moon in 1969, the amount that our technology has advanced, we must be very, very far. But for some reason, it feels like the human desire to explore outer space has has gone down a bit to some degree, which is really like kind of sad to me because I feel like there are so many planets that we could potentially be exploring. So right now there are about 5,500 known planets. And out of those 5,500, 55 of them are Earth-like. So that's about 1%. Out of the 5,500, only 55 are Earth-like. So let me explain a little bit what Earth-like means. So the standard definition for a habitable planet is one that can sustain life for a significant period of time. Based on our solar system, life requires 
things like liquid water, energy, nutrients. But just because a planet has these things doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually going to be suitable for human habitation. But the thing is also, just because a planet has these things doesn't mean that it's actually going to be suitable for human habitation. Certain things could be off. There could be, you know, too much oxygen in the atmosphere, just like things that need to be tweaked. This is where the idea of terraforming comes in. So terraforming is essentially the idea that we could alter a planet to be more suitable for our needs through use of technology. And it's, of course, an idea that we've seen in countless science fiction books since like forever. But it's also something that we are beginning to make some minor moves on in the real life. We're already beginning to develop certain technologies that we can potentially use to terraform planets. For instance, very recently, the rover on Mars managed to extract a certain amount of oxygen from the surface of Mars. They actually produced enough oxygen to sustain a small dog for about 10 hours. So this is very, very early technology, but it essentially proves the concept. We are beginning to make strides to begin the process of learning how to terraform worlds. It's here. And Mars is the perfect candidate to start our venture into terraforming. For one, it's pretty close to us, and it has several qualities that would make the process easier. So Mars does have an atmosphere, but it's mm -hmm. 100 times thinner than ours on Earth. So right now, if you tried breathing on Mars, you would last maybe a few minutes tops. The atmospheric pressure is too low, which means that bodily fluids like saliva or tears would start boiling away. And that's because you need a certain amount of atmospheric pressure, a certain amount of pressure to maintain liquids. Right, without uh, atmospheric pressure, liquids evaporate. They just become gas. So NASA actually had a test subject who was accidentally exposed to a near vacuum environment. This was back in 1965. Wow. His suit started leaking and he remained conscious for about 14 seconds, which is about the amount of time it takes for oxygen-deprived blood to go from the lungs to the brain. But they repressurized the chamber and he survived. Good. The subject said that his last conscious thoughts was hearing the air leak out of the suit and the saliva on his tongue start to boil. Oh my God, that's so scary. Because like when I was a kid, I think like, I used to think, oh, I could be an astronaut, but I would have probably gotten to like a test environment like that and just be like, nope, I can't do this. Not the boiling tongue thing. No, same, thank you. Same. I, I, ever since I was a kid, I've actually never wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, we actually had an astronaut give an assembly at our school. That's cool. And he was telling us all sorts of stories about the tests that he had to pass in order to become an astronaut. And I just kept thinking... This is something I uh, never want to do <laughs> until we have the technology from Star Trek or Star Wars. I don't think you can get me on a spaceship. Yeah, you kind of have to get over like the claustrophobia and the loneliness and just like the sheer terror of like floating in outer space and there's a vacuum surrounding you. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. So Mars exists on the edge of the habitable zone over the solar system, which means liquid water on the surface could be supported if concentrated greenhouse gases could increase the atmospheric pressure. And there's strong evidence that Mars once had an atmosphere as thick as Earth's. Whoa. And it had liquid water on the surface. So when you say Mars is at the end of the habitable zone, you mean that 
it's not too close to the sun where liquid water would just like evaporate like you know mercury venus right and it's not too far away where it would just be like frozen like you know like the moons of like saturn and jupiter and pluto and stuff like that but mars actually does have frozen water beneath the surface and mostly around the south and north poles interesting and if melted all that ice would become a planet-wide ocean oh very interesting so there's three things that we need in order to terraform mars so like three barriers that we would have to cross before we can actually live on mars yeah so the first thing is we need to raise the temperature Mm -hmm. and that would melt those ice caps give it an ocean and also that would create um, a greenhouse effect which goes into the second thing we need to do which is build up the atmosphere Mm -hmm. now right now mars's atmosphere consists mostly of carbon dioxide completely unbreathable our atmosphere is like mostly it's less than one percent is carbon dioxide it's mostly nitrogen um, and oxygen so we would have to somehow alter the atmosphere but the third thing and this is the biggest thing is we'd have to create a magnetic field to hold in that atmosphere mars is much smaller than earth so it doesn't have a magnetic field so that's the reason that the atmosphere disappeared in the first place was because of its lack of a magnetic right. field. Yeah, so it was solar winds that slowly scraped away that atmosphere to what it is today. So even if we were to create an atmosphere, it would just happen again. dissipate off into space. Yeah. yeah so we had we would have to create some sort of barrier to block the solar winds in order for Mars to have its own magnetic field. So do we have any idea about how we would even go about doing this even a little bit? Yes and no. The technology would require a lot of resources and a lot of time. But the general idea would to create some sort of object or ring that would orbit around Mars and act kind of like a magnetic umbrella. Mm-hmm. So we wouldn't be able to give the planet itself like a magnetic field. We would have to create some object that could act that could have the same function as Earth's natural magnetic field. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. It would just block the solar winds so mm-hmm. the atmosphere could stay intact. Ah, so yeah. So that's more like a concept idea about like how we would potentially do it. But as far as like having the actual technology, we're really not like really there at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I just said that there were three things that we'd need in order to terraform Mars. Uh-huh. I should have said four ah. because we're going to need public support to oh, do this. Yeah. Right? right this is going to take a lot of money and a lot of resources a lot of time to complete nasa can't afford this on its own not at all it's going to need to be a global effort so we'd have to somehow convince humanity that this is a good idea it would be the most expensive project of all time and it would take a really long time and people are not good at looking it would ahead. cost trillions of dollars mm-hmm. and it would take a century or two so generations even if we were to start right now mm-hmm. we wouldn't see it in our lifetimes our children probably wouldn't see it in their lifetimes and our grandchildren maybe would yeah. see the effects of terraforming that Mars. would be a really hard sell for anybody that's yeah. not super super nerdy and not super already into the idea of mars being terraformed right because i hear the argument a lot of why go to mars and terraform mars when we need to fix our own climate first shouldn't Mm -hmm. we be spending those resources to fix earth Uh uh-huh to me the answer is no we should be terraforming mars first because we need to test out this technology let's see if we can create a livable breathable atmosphere first because if we fuck up wouldn't you rather us screw up mars 
than than screw up our own earth well i think i see the thing is i don't think it's mutually exclusive i think yeah Yeah. we can go terraform mars and also let's let's improve our life on earth why does it have to be one or another (laughs) for like everybody it's like we can't do this without no we can do both things i wish humanity would regain its like spirit of just wanting to advance and wanting to you know do things as a civilization i mean like the ancient world did so many great things they built so many huge monuments over like sometimes it took decades sometimes hundreds of years years to build some of those monuments that ancient civilizations built you mean they they they, and i feel like we've lost that to some degree uh and and it's kind of sad because i feel like it's so obvious that we should be terraforming mars we should be colonizing mars we've got to get off this little bubble yeah i totally agree so do you think that it's going to be worth our time and resources to terraform Mars? I absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I think it absolutely will. Because even if like we fail to terraform Mars, like you said, we're going to develop new technologies that maybe we could implement on other worlds. And that's the thing. For us to survive long term in the cosmos, we have got to get off of Earth because the sun is going bye-bye in like a billion years. It's going to expand to the point where it's going to consume the Earth. And if we hope to survive long-term in the cosmos as a species, we've obviously got to get off this planet. And it starts with Mars, most likely. Like That's that's obviously, we're not going to travel across the big distance to terraform someplace when we can terraform Mars. Mars will be like a trial run. Yeah, but Mm -hmm. then ultimately we got to move out of this solar system. we got to see what this universe is all about. We've got to go out and claim our space in the universe because, you know, there's bound to be other civilizations and who knows at what rates they're expanding. And we want to be the big dogs in the universe. We don't want them to come to us. We want to be the ones that are coming and being like, Hey, you're the primitive civilization. You know what I mean? We don't, we want to be, if we're going to, you know, you get what I mean. Yeah. We got to explore. We got to get out of here. (laughs) So do you think terraforming technology is the only technology essential for ensuring human longevity in the cosmos? Well, certainly not the only technology that's essential, um, but it's one of the major ones because we're going to obviously, like I said, 55 out of those out of those 5,500 planets that we know of, only 55, 1% are Earth-like. And then who knows what percentage of those will actually be habitable for humans. So we're going to have to like, we need that technology. Absolutely. But of course, it's not the only thing. You know, we're going to have to like figure out how to like travel fast enough to get to the planets. We're going to have to figure out how to keep us alive long enough to survive the journey to the to the world so there are several things that we're going to need to develop um but terraforming is a major one i think if we if we hope to for long-term survival as a as a galactic species for sure so let's say we had the technology right now to go colonize another planet given the chance do you think that you could live on a human colony and go be the first to colonize a planet Okay, it's, that's that. My answer is dependent on several things. Like, what's the state of the Earth? So, if the Earth, if we're talking about an Elysium situation where everything sucks on Earth and it's kind of like doomed and it's crappy, if I if I could bring my loved ones with me and they were like, okay, go and colonize a new world, I I would say yes. And it also depends on the conditions of the of the vessel that we're traveling on and how it's going to be. Are we put? Are, you, are we going to be put in? cryogenic sleep because i feel like i would need to be put in cryogenic sleep i wouldn't want to like live 50 years on a ship floating to the destination and then just the next generation gets there i would rather just be put in sleep and then wake up when we get to the planet 
So yeah, I mean, but if the Earth is like it is now, and it's just like, oh, leave Earth and go, I feel like I would rather stay here if the Earth is in the current condition. So it depends on the state of the Earth and who I get to bring with me and the conditions on the ship. For me, it would depend on the state of travel because uh-huh. I don't want to be claustrophobic yeah. on a ship. And you know, whenever we read science fiction or we watch science fiction, we're like, oh, that's so cool. I wish I could be on that spaceship. You know, we want to experience those worlds. But at the end of the day, if you tried putting me in a little tiny pod and said, okay, now you're going to sleep for 100 years, <laughs> there's no way It'd be scary. you could get me into that little chamber. It would definitely be freaky. See, the thing is, that is kind of the scariest part about cry, cry, being cryonically frozen. It's like getting into that little pie. And my where my mind goes is like an Adrian Tchaikovsky, like Children of Time situation. Like maybe it's like, oh, you're going to be sleeping for 20 years and you wake up is what they tell you. But then like you wake up like 100 years later and like the ship is somewhere where you totally didn't expect it to be. And like humanities continue to like evolve and change around you with you frozen and everything's like different and like the plan is like totally like gone haywire and everything's gone crazy that would be freaky but honestly i think that i could do it and let me tell you why because if the earth was ruined and i'm guaranteed a miserable existence on earth i would rather take that risk that things would go bad in outer space and be one of the first humans to live that story than just like die on earth like every other human that's ever existed. I'd rather be one of the first humans that that dies in a weird sci-fi space situation. You know what I mean? I would rather yeah. suffer there than have a basic earth suffering storyline, if that makes any sense. It does make sense, but I got to take the opposite route here. I don't think you could cram me into a, a spaceship with thousands of other humans. I don't know if I could last. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I could do it. Yeah. I think I would rather... Just decide I'm going to stay on Earth and just suffocate. <laughs> I'd rather do that than than be in a tiny little spaceship. I, like I said, it just depends on the method of travel. Well, yeah, because like we we t- I tend to think too. My mind goes to you know, like Star Trek and the Enterprise. The Enterprise is like a luxury. That's a very comfortable ship. Vessel, you know, they got the hollow deck. Everything's padded. They got carpet in there. You got like ten forward. Like, it's great. It's like you're at a freaking hotel. But how long could you last in a metal, a big metal chamber, even if it's comfortable like the Enterprise? I feel like humans need that connection to an earth, to to an ecosystem, to nature. Yeah. Aren't you going to miss miss it? Well, to to simply put it, hell no. No. (laughs) Here's the thing. Here's the thing, the Enterprise, if it's the Enterprise, that implies that I'm in the, we're in the Star Trek future, baby. It's like, we're post-scarcity, and also, they're always, like, taking trips to, like, the pleasure planet, and, like, going on away missions, they're always getting to see new places, and then also, the holodeck is just, like, it's indistinguishable from real life. I mean, the holodeck can totally, like, produce, like, actual, like, entities that are, like, kind of alive. It's actually kind of weird how it does that. You know, it uses the same technology as like the replicator. So when it's like producing like a plant or a tree or something, it's a real tree that's existing for that point in time. So I feel like between the holodeck and between our like missions landing and just between like just being on the inter- I could deal with it. I could easily deal with it. I could live there forever. Like forget a five year mission. I could mm-hmm. do it forever. I honestly truly think that I could. Absolutely. I don't know. I think there's still <laughs> something in the back of my mind that would say this isn't natural. This isn't natural. You need to feel the earth. 
Well, you could still be on Earth, and like by by the time we get to the Star Trek future, we could we can record the podcast on like the trans whatever dimensional wave. I don't know what it's called in Star Trek, but like we can still we could still record it remotely anyway. It'd be fine. I guess if I was born into that lifestyle of living on a ship, I could handle it. But right now, I just don't think I could give up my <laughs> my earthly existence. Your earth yeah, brain right so. now. I guess so. <laughs> so, how soon do you think humans will be able to colonize another planet? Hmm. See, that's a good one. I don't know if I if I was just throwing out a number, I would say something like five hundred years. But the thing is. You never know, like the Vulcans could appear tomorrow and like open up a wormhole and be like, here you guys go, here's the technology, go wherever you want. So you never know like what weird technology is going to like just pop up out of nowhere. So I mean, it could be, we don't know. Like it's happened so many times in history where we've just like boomed in technology and nobody saw it coming. Something completely unexpected is invented and Mm -hmm. changes everything. Yeah. I'm actually reading a book right now by Peter F. Hamilton. Um, It's called, yeah, it's called Pandora's Star. And it's part of his Commonwealth saga. Ah. And in this book, humans have colonized several planets, and they call it the Commonwealth. But it starts out with this really funny chapter of this astronaut that's on a ship on his way to Mars because they're about to start the terraforming and colonization process of Mars. So they're on the ship, and he's landing, and he gives this big speech about how he's about to be the first man on Mars. But right when he's about to step down, Bloop. <laughs> a, a portal, a, a wormhole opens up and there's a scientist that just discovered how to no. to use wormhole <laughs> technology. And so in the book, that's how they start colonizing other planets. They don't need spaceships anymore. They can open up wormholes and instantly get there. And all the planets are connected by like a train system and portals. That's really super cool. cool. I highly recommend it. Pandora's Star. That poor Peter guy. Hamilton. That poor guy totally got his thunder's stolen though yeah <laughs> but keep reading he's like the main character in the book he's pretty cool yeah so yeah i mean if we could invent you know teleporters i just think of how that would transform earth you know like star trek they've got teleporters mm-hmm. and i always think about like how like you know john luke picard he's got a french name but he's got a british accent yeah but when you think about like how tele would actually change things it's, it's kind of like they would blend all cultures together like borders don't exist when people can teleport to paris for a for coffee and teleport back to new york for lunch or something i don't know yeah. so i mean of course he could it, a, a french man could have a british accent i mean yeah i mean he could you could live in france and then go to school in england you know so i mean it would totally change things it would like all of society would just become a huge cultural melting pot be interesting right but don't make sure you don't have a fly in the teleporter when you're teleporting otherwise you might end up like jeff <laughs> we'll, goldblum. we'll get a jeff goldblum situation <laughs> so like you said before there are 55 earth-like planets that we know about mm-hmm. so if a planet is earth-like that means it's already primed to maybe have life mm. so let's say we go to this planet we know it's earth-like we know that we could exist there but we get there and there's already life there. How do you think us humans are going to react to that? That is a good question. So I think it essentially depends on what kind of life and their degree of advancement and also the hostility of the life. Because if we're talking xenomorphs, kill them. We got to get out of here. No, we're just leaving. We're just leaving. (laughs) We are not landing on this planet. We're just getting out. So um, it depends on hostility. It depends on the nature of said life. 
right? If, if it's anything like the animal life on earth, I think that we would just become the new dominant species. But right. if God forbid, it's like some like primitive intelligent species, because I feel like humans are just not good at that. We and want I, to survive. We would subjugate them. I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying like any individual person would be like, let's subjugate those people, but it would happen if we chose to colonize their world. We're, a highly advanced race of beings coming in and it's also what at what point in humanity's timeline is this is this early humanity discovering a world because if it's early humanity then there's no doubt that we're going to subjugate them because if, if it's like us and this is our like thousands planet we've discovered maybe we by that time we've gotten like a prime directive like star trek and we're like we don't interfere with primitive worlds but if it's early on and we discovered that i feel like that race of beings will be subjugated and it's going to be a sad situation for them. And we're going to do the same thing to them that we did. We've done all the Native Americans, the Aboriginals, like the story, the tale is old as time, you know? Well, I can imagine if we get to a planet and we just had the technology to get to that planet and land and start a new life. I mean, if I was on that ship thinking that I was about to start a new life on a planet and then realize that, oh, there's this planet's already occupied. I mean... I want to land on that planet. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we'd have no choice but to go down there. See, this is our only option. And this is where I we are. I want to live. You know, I, I don't have any emotional connection to these creatures. And that's how mm -hmm. I'm going to see them. We're going to have no real way to communicate at first. I'm just going to see creatures. I want to survive. I came all this way. Well, I, 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 would, I would hope that like we would do everything that we could to not like screw them over you know what i mean i hope that we would have some compassion at least on a very basic level like for animals where we understand that like we shouldn't be like making animals go extinct especially right. by that point by this point in time right you imagine that humanity has we've already overcome like this huge hurdle of getting here so that means that we probably have to cooperate with each other to a significant degree. So maybe we have matured as a species a little bit. Or then again, maybe it's like a capitalist venture. We don't really know the reason that we're traveling. So we could have an avatar situation. But it just, it depends on so many factors. It depends on so many factors, I think. Right. But looking at our track record, it's not good. So what do you think the worst fictional planet to live on would be? Books, movies, TV, video games, you name it. Which one would be the worst for me, I would say Seleucicundus from Dune because it's just like just as inhospitable as Arrakis and it's dark and gloomy and it's a prison planet. So you already got that aspect of it going. So for me, I feel like Seleucicundus would be just an absolute drag of a world to live on. Just very depressing. I hate it. For me, the most inhospitable planet in all of fiction, Trisolaris oh, from the three-body problem. Shishinlu. Yeah, right. that's a good one. That's a that's a planet you can't even terraform. Mm -hmm. We can't even figure out the three body problem to learn how to live on a planet with <laughs> three, three suns. At any second, we could have a chaotic era where it just wipes toast. everybody out. And I don't have the ability to hydrate or rehydrate, which yeah. is a three body problem reference, by the way. So I could not live on that planet. Yeah, but at least once once the era comes, you're just toast. You know I guess mean? so. <laughs> but I guess you'd always be anticipating it, though. You'd be like, okay, when am I going to get screwed by the planet? Yeah. <laughs> so this episode is all about humanity leaving Earth and trying to find a new home among the stars. Now, there is a movie... 
that came out a few years ago. That's about exactly that. And it's one of our favorite movies. Both of us, we really like this movie. I love this movie. Yeah. When it came out, I saw it in IMAX three times Me too. by myself. Well, I only saw it once in IMAX. <laughs> but yeah. So Interstellar, Christopher Nolan, which some people might say this is his best movie. I really, really love it. And I really ha- I really love how this movie captures like the the grandness, the cosmic grandness of the universe. It's it's really impressive how he does that with this movie. So like you said, this episode is about humanity leaving Earth. That's exactly the main idea behind this movie. So in general, what is the plot of Interstellar in your words? So Interstellar takes place at some point in the not-so-distant future where blight has affected the crops of the world and there is a food shortage and there has been a great depletion in um, humanity. There's way less humans now. And I think the implication is there was some war as well that kind of helped to deplete the population of Earth. Well, in the movie, they do mention that there's no militaries anymore. Yeah, something like that. It's they don't they don't exactly give you like all the information about like what happened in the past, but they, they leave you breadcrumbs. But essentially what you need to know is there's there's a lack of food, right? So the earth is kind of screwed and there's going to be less and less food because there's blight and the blight is increasing the amount of nitrogen in the atmosphere and there's less and less oxygen. So not only is there a food shortage, the oxygen on the earth is very literally running out. And so NASA, which is now kind of in hiding, they kind of operate in secret, has a mission to go to the stars to seek out a new world because they've discovered a wormhole that has appeared that leads to another galaxy that has habitable habitable planets potentially. And that's where we're going to head. And that's essentially what the movie is about. It's about the mission to find a new place in the cosmos for human beings. So what I like about Interstellar is that there are several reasons that the Earth might become problematic for humanity to live on. And Interstellar kind of gives us like all of those problems at once a little bit. You know, it talks about there is a food shortage. The climate is changing. Overpopulation is one that you do see in science fiction, but that's it's kind of the reverse in Interstellar. There's like the population is is like kind of dwindling. But there's multiple reasons that humanity would want to live or would want to leave Earth in this movie. NASA has a philosophy that is at odds with other characters. For example, the principal of the school mm-hmm. insists, we need farmers, not engineers. He says, we're not running out of planes or TVs. We're running out of food. Mm-hmm. We need farmers. But NASA says that space exploration and technology is imperative to survival. Michael Caine's character says, we aren't meant to save the world. We are meant to leave it. Mm-hmm. So with these two ideologies that the movie presents, what do you think Interstellar is trying to say about the way human beings think? I've always, not always, but I have this idea that the earth is the egg of humanity and that we are meant to leave and we are meant to hatch out of it and to go on to explore the cosmos. I think it's necessary for our survival. I think That's also the opinion of NASA in this movie. But the truth is most people, people in general, only really see what's right in front of them. It's really hard for people to look beyond the problem that is right in front of them. People say this all the time about all sorts of things. Why are we concerned about this when we should be working on this? You know what I mean? They can only see 
what's direct. It's, it's why people have a hard time like accepting climate change and like why we have a hard time like doing any action on climate change because people are only concerned about the most big problem that's right in front of their eyes and they're not thinking ahead. And I think NASA is very much, I think NASA, because it's made up of scientists, they, they, they're, they're more willing to see the big picture. They're more likely to see the big picture and understand that the earth is kind of doomed and, and that we need to be making plans for the future humanity and not just you know dying in this tomb. I think that while everyone else is thinking about humanity right now, NASA is thinking about humanity's future, like very, very literally. You know, that we've got the, the frozen embryos that are quite literally intended to be the future of humanity. It's not about us right now. It's about the future generations for NASA. And it's just like two, two different schools of thought. So NASA is basically like kind of in hiding in this movie. And I think the reason that th that is, is because like obviously a lot of money is being spent on this project to, you know, inhabit outer space and to travel to outer space. And what is the public going to think about right. that? Because who would fund space exploration when you're struggling to put food on the table? That's the reason that NASA's budget is being cut right now is because people don't really care about NASA and they're more worried about everything else. But I'm like, we are in a tiny little bubble and the middle of nothing floating in the middle of nothing. Something could easily come and crack this little bubble. There's a time limit. We've got to hatch. We've got to get out of here. And I think that, you know, it's it's so hard for individuals to see beyond like our, our like basic problems and to think about the problem of humanity as like a super organism, to think about how we need to move and change as a super organism and as a species. Well, this movie reminds me of the frailty of humanity because life is completely dependent on a planet or ecosystem. Yeah. At one point in the movie, they're in the spaceship and a character points out that outside the shell of the spaceship is nothing mm -hmm. forever yeah. and that nothing could kill us. Yeah. We can't exist in nothing. We are completely dependent on a planet. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. When I think about being on a spaceship, I see the enterprise, I see science fiction, but the idea of actually being on a spaceship and being awake and knowing that just a couple of inches that way is just the void. And if we die here, if we die in this part of space, no one's ever going to find this vessel. This vessel will float in the darkness forever. That is your tomb now. And it's, it's just, it is, it is, it is creepy. It's like when you're in outer space, death is surrounding you almost just like the blackness of the universe. Yeah, it is. It is. It's pretty scary. And it just, it, 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 it really brings up, yeah, how weak we are, how frail we are. We really need <laughs> and that, yeah, it goes back to what we were saying. Like we're in a bubble right now and it's like the bubble to some degree is just as frail as we are. I mean, we should be reinforcing it. We should be like growing stronger. Yeah, it, it's, it definitely reminds you. It, the whole movie in general is about the frailty of humanity, like how easily like the blight comes and just wipes everything out in a few generations. Like the grandpa character, right, is us, right? He was alive in the time when they ate hot dogs at, at, at baseball games. Right. That's us. And it's crazy how in a few generations, all of that is just taken away from us. Like everything that we've built up, we think that we're like we've come so far as humans and that we could never like go backwards. But it, it can happen so quickly because we really are just biomatter. And that's really all we are. And any in any like a tiny little blight can spread and destroy us all. So it's really it's really 
it makes you think for sure. So Interstellar has a lot of big things to say about humanity. But what do you think some of the inspirations are for this movie? Well, I think we we oh, we got to talk about obviously 2001 a space odyssey is this right. the biggest inspiration like this is i feel like interstellar is kind of like a modern version of 2001 a space odyssey it's saying a lot of the same things about like humanity's advancement and humanity evolving and like moving beyond this like little shell of where we are um and, and i think both movies kind of capture the cosmic grandeur of the universe like the, like the, just like the the beauty and the magnitude of the universe so i, I definitely Inter- interstellar is just heavily inspired by 2001 a space odyssey probably more so than some anything. of the scenes are shot similar to yeah. the way it shows the ship mm-hmm. out in space it looks very much like 2001 space odyssey in fact the music or the score to this film is itself a reference to 2001 space odyssey and you would know that because you went to school for music that's true so hans zimmer uses an instrument in particular in this score the pipe organ and in 2001 space odyssey stanley kubrick didn't really have a score for the film. He used other pieces, classical pieces that already existed. Yeah. And the opening of 2001 Space Odyssey, he uses a piece from a tone poem by Johann Strauss called Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is a reference to Nietzsche's book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Interesting. That's cool. So the scene at the beginning of the movie uses this piece. And the opening motif that Johann Strauss uses is called The Sunrise, where the orchestra comes to a crescendo which leads to this epic booming and echoing of the pipe organ. Mm -hmm. And in the music, the sound of the pipe organ represents the sheer power of the sun and humanity's will to power. Wow. And when that music is played in the movie 2001 Space Odyssey, it's at a point where the ape men come into contact with the monolith for the first time and they start to understand their own power, the power of humanity and the power of violence. Oh. So I can see why Hans Zimmer took this instrumental idea of the pipe organ yeah. and ran with it. With Absolutely. This movie. Yeah, because like both movies are about, you know, humanity transcending and like reaching new heights. Like that's exactly what happens in Interstellar. We learn that the the five dimensional beings are actually like really advanced humans. And then, of course, in 2001 Space Odyssey, we have the main character be like going through like the cosmic void and bearing bearing witness to cosmic chaos and becoming star child and and then going back to Earth to lead humanity um, on a new path. So, yeah, definitely very, very similar themes and ideas. And it goes all the way down to the music. That's so freaking cool. That's why I love Interstellar. I learn something new about it every day, every time I watch it. So in the movie, there are two potential goals for human survival. Mm-hmm. One is the idea that a new colony would be started on a distant world made up of frozen embryos. The other would involve the remnants of humans migrating from Earth at a massive scale. The only problem with that second option is that there is no practical way to transfer all humans without first solving the problem of gravity. So can you explain to us what, what is the problem of gravity? Yes. So in this movie, at some point, NASA began to detect like these, these disturbances of gravity in the solar system in outer space. Right. And eventually they, they detect the creation of a wormhole to another uh, galaxy. And what all this tells them is that gravity can be manipulated. So 
they start working on this equation, trying to solve the problem of gravity. Because if they can manipulate gravity, then they can get humans off the planet easily. They don't have to expend like because one of the biggest hurdles to getting things off the planet is fighting gravity and having enough energy and fuel to lift a big rocket off of the surface of the Earth. So they've got if they can solve this equation and figure out how to manipulate gravity, it would be it'd be totally easy. It wouldn't matter. We would have the we wouldn't need to expend. We it'd be a fraction of the amount of energy. It'd be totally easy to do. But the problem is, in order to get the numbers, in order they they need data that would only be available inside of a black hole if they crossed the event horizon. So there is a roadblock that is preventing them. From solving the problem of gravity in this movie so that's essentially what the problem of gravity refers to and this and that's a cool idea because i'm not a physicist but i know that there are roadblocks like that in physics where it's like theoretically something might be possible but it's like we don't have the data to actually even begin to approach trying to figure it out and it's just so interesting to me stuff like that so ultimately this movie is in some sense about the transcendence of the human spirit. Right. It suggests that love acts as some kind of fundamental force Uh not yet understood by mankind. Is it possible, as the movie suggests, for something like love to be quantifiable? Um, I don't know. Probably not. (laughs) I think that humankind, we've developed, love is a complicated thing and I think it's the opposite of quantifiable, right? I think love is literally the opposite because it's not it's not something that we can measure on a scale. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? I feel like okay. love is so like weird. And if you ask people what love is, everyone has a different definition. Love is kind of intangible in a weird way. So I get what the movie is is, is saying to an extent. But love, love is quantifiable, doesn't really like ring true to me. And I feel like that's one of the things in the movie that I've always felt. I've always felt like when we get to that part where it's like love is quantifiable. I get what they're going for. I get why that makes narrative sense, but it doesn't ring necessarily true. If love is quantifiable, hate is also quantifiable, right? That means every human emotion is quantifiable. Yeah. Which quantify, what does that mean that a human emotion is quantifiable? Yeah. I feel yeah that's why I, I feel like human emotions are kind of like the opposite of quantifiable but there is a good quote there is a good quote in the movie and i'm going to read that quote maybe it means something more something we can't yet understand maybe it's some evidence some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive i'm drawn across the universe to someone i haven't seen in a decade who i know is probably dead Love is the one thing that we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it. And that's Anne Hathaway speaking about love and like how it's potentially quantifiable. So I think that's a, a beautiful idea for a movie. It's a great idea in a story. It's a great narrative moment in a story for characters, right? Yeah. So I don't know if love is quantifiable, but in this movie, and I think in real life too, love is the driving force for human progress. Yeah. Like I said, I wouldn't want to like, if it, like if I got the option to go to space, right, I wouldn't want to go without my loved ones. I wouldn't want to go like if, if we're leaving love behind, then it's like, why go anyway? Right. Yeah. So it's like I get the, the driving, the fundamental message is like, yeah, explore space, but take love with you. 
I think. And I think that's the point of the movie. Like, take love with you. I like that. And, and, the, and it's because the movie is like it's all about the connection between Matthew McConaughey and his daughter. And it does transcend space time. It totally does. So, yeah, it, it's 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 I feel like it's not to be taken like totally literally, but I, I, I totally love it. And I love the message of it. So Interstellar, if you guys haven't seen it, absolutely watch Great it. Great movie. Masterpiece of a film. One of Christopher Nolan's best, absolutely science fiction at its best just beautifully done just like great 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 cgi like some of the best cgi you will ever see is in this movie and i really hope it comes back to imax at one point so i can go see it again in absolutely IMAX. please do like it. i said before i've seen it three times in imax when it came out it's one of those movies where it's like so worth it to see it on a big screen absolutely and just just a really good movie and we love it check it out so thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Cosmic Chronicles podcast. You can find our podcast wherever you listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. New episodes of the podcast every other Friday. Thanks so much, guys.